Hello, dear friends. This is Alley Audio Vision, back in your ears for another round of stories about architecture and other pastimes from Ralph Alley. I'm Clark Yarrington with Frame Residential Design, Anchorage, Alaska. Mr. Alley spent 30 years designing in Alaska beginning in 1959. In this episode, Ralph discusses what it was like living on 4th Avenue in early 1960s Anchorage. Activity on the military base nearby because of the Cuban Missile Crisis interrupts Ralph's overnight sleep. Renegade roommate Frank Nosek pushes his buttons on various excursions. There's a very wonderful Denali flight scene trip. Halloween at the Hofbrau restaurant. Another plane ride to look at an upper hillside home site in the spring. And we finished this one with Frank pulling Ralph away from his exam studies to check out the festivities at a rowdy bar farther down 4th Avenue. Ralph Alley joins me from an undisclosed Southern California location. When we left off last time, we were talking about living in a central business district. I never thought of Anchorage being the central business district, but that's what it really was, that area where Hewitt's Drug and Federal Building and the theater and, and seemed to be an epicenter of Anchorage. Living down there, you got to know everybody walking up and down the street. And interestingly enough, we were starting into Frank Nosek, who was a fraternity brother. When I moved to Anchorage, I didn't know anybody except the guy who hired me. I was liking that in a Verse way, I enjoyed not knowing anybody from the past, and I was kind of jealous of people infiltrating that knew me in the past. But anyway, I was walking in front of the Matanuska Valley Bank, and coming toward me was Frank Nosek. He's very distinctive. I, I, we were in college, and as already said, we're fraternity brothers, but he and I were campaign managers for opposing student body presidents in Idaho and that always gets kind of interesting when you, especially your kids and you're trying to feel your way through something like that but I just happened to be the guy I was representing one living in the same town where the university was uh, I live way across town uh, or the, I didn't live there but my family's house was there but I was in college in architecture trying to minor in music. Now, music's a big part of my life. By the time I got really ensconced into architecture, I didn't have the heart or intensity for piano as I did as a kid. And I really wasn't doing well, but I thought maybe it'd help if I do practicing on a friendly piano. So on Saturdays, I'd go over to the house and the piano was in this niche in off the living room with a great big window, a lot of panes on it. My dad would often hire students from the university to come and wash windows or other chores around the house that I guess sons should do. And I was there one Saturday and all of a sudden at the window with ladders, rags, and buckets was Frank. And I was just going away practicing scales on the house piano much better than those keyboards that were busted in the practice rooms at the university. I, those were hard to play for me. Anyway, that was a big embarrassment to me. While he was out there washing up the panes, I was all of a sudden 
in pain <laughs> practiced doing Cherney, which was a guy who did all these intricate scales that you had to learn to pass certain musical curriculums. And I, we never spoke of that, but the supreme embarrassment was almost more than a kid that age could take. <laughs> and guys didn't play the piano in those days, by the way, in case you knew that or not. Most of them didn't. Well, I did. Well, good for you. <laughs> That's probably one reason we get along. That wasn't the that wasn't the same days. I realize, you know, it was like <laughs> twenty five years later. But yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. Well, it's. I was meeting with some people yesterday who listened to these podcasts. They were going on and says, you know, that guy who interviews you, you two seem like the best of friends. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> You do after a while. I mean, we've never really laid eyes on each other, or well, we have. We haven't. If you, we won't get into that. But uh, I didn't know who you were at the time. And yeah, well, we've mentioned several times before that my dad was in architecture school with you, so that's how I knew about you in the first place. But then, uh, you know, more recently, I just uh, got better acquainted with uh, your work and what you were doing, and particularly in the residential field, which is my main interest uh, these days. Did you mention before that your family's house was in Moscow, Idaho also? I think you may have mentioned that, but I didn't remember. Probably I did. Uh, by the time I moved to Anchorage, my mother, you know, my dad died prior to my going to Anchorage. And uh, when I was in college, uh, but not too much before I moved to Anchorage, and my mother just couldn't live there as somebody's widow. She, I guess maybe that's where I got that. She didn't like all those friends that they had together. She did like them, but it was hard to be herself. I mentioned she was a surgical nurse, and she just decided to go somewhere other than Moscow where she knew no one. She did get a position with a Dr. Voigt who happened to be John Voigt's uncle in Napa, California. And uh, John Voigt was pursuing a career in motion pictures when I was up there in Anchorage pursuing architecture. And they used to, I guess over surgery, would talk about that because I guess the uncle was his surrogate father because... Um, his own father was a professional golfer and was didn't really have that relationship that uh, the uncle did with uh, John. But I always thought that was kind of an amusing thing. But she enjoyed not living in Moscow. And I always ruminate when you ask me questions, but there's always a lot to say. Yeah. Well, on the subject of um, your mom's situation, I didn't really realize it until talking with um somebody who I was dating about five years ago, but she was telling me more than I ever really uh, took time to uh, learn about before that single women have kind of a hard time in society. And I think that's still true, and it was true then, where if you're um, married or you have um, somebody you're going with for a long time, your social situation can be a lot different. But if you're not, it can be like really isolating. You know, she, she said that when she had a uh, a boyfriend. She had a bunch of um, women who were also attached who were her like um, friends and who they, they went on um, like outdoor stuff together and did other things together. And then um, 
once she broke up with this guy, all of the friends kind of broke up with her too. She would like call people and they wouldn't call her back. And like, uh, I guess everybody was like worried about, you know, she was going to take their uh, boyfriends or, or husbands uh, away husbands. from them. Yes. So it's weird. I, I never really thought about that before, you know, maybe something like that. And I think it applies to women who are single for any reason, you know, whether it's a breakup or a, a death in the family or whatever. Well, it, it seems rather interesting. Both my mother and father, uh, my mother was in nurses training. My father was interning. That's where he met in a place near San, uh, Sacramento, California. Why she was in Napa doing surgery, sur being a surgical nurse, my father's best friend and his wife, who I've known all my life, and their son, who's exactly my age, and I've known all my life, became an architect, and I didn't know that. It seemed getting reacquainted. There was all this interesting thing. And finally, the guy's wife died, mother's good friend, and they married. And so this, this became like a family. My wife went to this uh, boarding school in uh, Tacoma, and... I guess she knew this guy who became an architect's wife. They went to school together. And it was almost an incredible coincidence all this happened. This was why I was in Anchorage, by the way. I had a little Tacoma connection myself. I went to uh, University of Puget Sound. I didn't get an architecture degree. I got a degree in something else. So I majored what? in uh, uh, politics and government and psychology, which uh, it's proven to be more useful than it probably sounds like in the field of uh, architecture. Well, actually, Clark, everything is politicized now. You probably know more how to react to any event than I do and ever will, because I, I just resent it. <laughs> yeah, my dad used to have um, some conversations with me about like, um, oh, sort of projects that um, ran aground a little bit and what he might do to get, try to get things back on track. And it did involve a lot of talking to the client in a certain way and say something like, um, I'm going to get him to do what I want and make him think it was their idea. <laughs> yes. Well, that I think that should be in 101 in architecture because not only do you work for people, you have to make them think that what you're doing is their idea. <laughs> and then you learn when you're out on your own, you do that for your clients. Yeah, so I didn't go to architecture school, and I'm at a bit of a disadvantage in trying to talk about it, but people who I've worked with in the past who did go have told me that they tend not to um, spend enough time on um, stuff that you could actually use in real life once you start working in the profession. Well, I've used everything I've learned in real life. <laughs> yeah. I've used it all. I've needed everything I could get in my mind. I have never quit learning. Okay, well, before we scurried down all of these side trails, I think you were starting to tell me again a little bit more about um, bumping into Frank for the first time and that you recognized him from down the block or something. Well, Anchorage. we passed each other as if we didn't even know each other. And I thought, Maybe won't. Maybe isn't living. Maybe didn't know who I was. Blah blah blah. And one day I was in the office at Manny Mayor's, and the phone rang. And I think it was Yvonne held the phone up to me, and she said, "There's some guy named Frank who wants to talk to you." And I thought, "Oh no!" <laughs> and so I picked the phone up, and he says, "You may think that I didn't see you." But he said, I have my all-seeing glasses. He wears thick horn glasses, 
and I saw you, I saw you not looking at me. <laughs> he says, let's go have some lunch and get acquainted again, but not anywhere expensive. And I said, well, do we have to chance tomain poisoning or what? <laughs> but anyway, we did have lunch. That was the preamble to him appearing at my uh, apartment door. You must have thought that everybody was spying on you all the time. You had that guy in the office who spotted you in the electronics yes. store. And <laughs> start to get paranoid after a while. Well, it is funny how people seem to think, you know, that their my business was their business or something. I don't know. But it is like that. I think I might have found myself giving some unsolicited advice from time to time, and I kind of draw back and go, oh, wait a second. <laughs> they didn't ask me about that. <laughs> well, I, I think we went through last time where Frank appeared at the door at the um, uh, Hewitt drugstore building there uh, over the Chichaco Bar, the apartment, which actually was over the entire east side of that building upstairs. Right, you said it had windows on three sides, so it was probably like kind of narrow and deep. Yeah, the one interesting thing that I thought, I, all that you were talking about downtown people, but I never met anybody else who lived in that building. I know that the Stuarts who had Stuart photos lived there and others, but I never saw them. They were so quiet. I guess they had to be not too noisy with the Chichaco under it. There. I don't know. That is how... Frank started living with me and uh, became a roommate. One day I was in the kitchen at, at lunch, still at Manly Mayor's working, and he comes barging in, doesn't even look, me, look at me, and he goes right to the refrigerator, and I was eating a sandwich. He says, go, go, to, go with me to Elmendorf this afternoon. He says, I need some office furniture, and I need a table and some chairs and blah, blah, blah. And he says, they have a kind of a, Oh, I guess it would be a surplus store that has all of these and says it's cheap. So I said, can you go with me this afternoon? I said, well, I'll look. Yes, so I'll go. Be here for We did that, and but prior to that was the Cuban crisis. This was in 62, and Elmendorf base just went crazy that night. I It woke me up uh, with all the lights and the planes and the jets taking off and coming in, blah, blah, blah. And he was sleeping in the other room, and he finally came out to the the bedroom to so we could look out the north window. And he says, what is that? I said, I have no idea. You're sleeping with the TV in the other room, and I didn't want to wake you up. So when we went in there, they are just showing all these kinescopes. That's what they call them instead of videos of uh, Kennedy and Cuba and all this stuff. And it really didn't explain what was happening. And I went to bed. But when he... To jump forward again, when he asked me to go on the base, that's the first thing I said to him, can we get there? Because I know they've been on alert ever since the Cuban crisis. And he says, he says, I will check it out. And anyway, he had this, uh, I, I'm not sure what they call that car. Um, it was like a little MG, and it had a specific name because it was kind of looked classic. It had running boards. Uh, oh, it was an MGTD, no doubt. It, is that what it was? Yeah, the, it it has like the big swooping fenders and the running boards on the side, and the trunk is kind of squarish. Like an old-time automobile. Yeah, it looks like it was designed in the 30s, but it was still made into the 60s. Oh, well, it didn't have a top, or at least I, it wasn't up when we went out 
to the parking lot, we got in it and I realized it did also have a heater. And we started over to Elmendorf, which is, I know the listeners, most of yours will probably know where that is, but it's uh, across the railroad tracks down there in the, what's the name of that creek down there? I oh, Ship Creek. Think. Ship Creek. And anyway, across across that, up the other side, and we were... It's far enough away that you'd be pretty freaking cold by the time you got there. <laughs> I was freezing. I said to him, my one worry, I said, did you check to see if we could get on base? And he always liked to push my buttons because I was always having everything in a row, everything I wanted to do, and uh, would always have to be investigated. And I married someone like that, and I really appreciate it, but Frank wasn't like that at all. He, he said, uh, no, I didn't do that. He said, do you have your ID with you? And I said, well, yes, but don't you have yours? And he says, well, you never know if they're going to accept mine or not. And I said, why would they accept it? He was just pushing buttons right and left. And anyway, we were in view of the hut where the guards were. He says, I'll ask them. So, so what did he do? He stepped on the gas and the car must have needed a ring job because behind it was this smoke <laughs> coming out. And we, and instead of slowing down where it said stop, slow, blah, 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 uh, <laughs> he raised his hand up in the air and waved, ta-ta, as we passed the guard hut. And of course, by this time, <laughs> I was a wreck. And he just left these people in this great big haze. And, and finally he stopped, and, and there was nothing there except the evaporation. And finally those two guards, young guys, were standing there with their rivals. And I didn't know where they were going to get bullets next or what. But he took his hand in this big gesture and put it in reverse, and we went back as fast as we in reverse as we were going forward by the hut. And he just leaked over that little sculpted top, that sill of the door, and laughing, and he went over, and they were laughing, and they shook hands, and blah, 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 and they let us on the base. But that is how Frank, <laughs> being around Frank is. <laughs> and that gives you a good idea of this character. I'll have to tell that story to my architect friend, Dick Reed, because he uh, ran the gate like that one time in, into the base, and I think he did it just because he sort of was spacing out, you know, <laughs> and he did. Oh, really? and he drove right through past the hut and they came after him with the sirens on top of the little cars. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, he just I, forgot where I've he had was. That, I've had that experience. <laughs> well, but, you know, another little note here, there still is a cool surplus store like that. It's not on the base, but it's um, it's right off of one of the gates to the base and it's near uh, my place in uh, Mountain View. I've lived in Mountain View for 20 years and so I'm sort of familiar with the base activities too because you can hear a lot from uh, from where I am. But anyhow, this uh, state uh, surplus store is like I've bought a lot of um, office furnishings from there and they're incredible. You know, you get all this like really super solid stuff that they're letting go for pennies on the dollar. Excellent resource. Frank, actually furnished his office which is pretty nice so we found things that didn't look in you know, world war ii everything was painted khaki which i expected yeah <laughs> metal khaki furniture but there was some really nice things and uh uh and his he, i think he still has it in his office 
that stuff that he bought that day. Yeah, they don't make them like that anymore, huh? No, they don't. No one would buy it, I don't think. But some other things that happened not too soon. Well, uh, hey, um, yeah, hang well, on to the thought because this is uh, time to insert the first uh, one-third uh, point break already. <laughs> so <laughs> let's do that. You didn't think we'd make it, did you? <laughs> oh, no, I, I have more faith than that. Anyway, we'll go to a quick break and be right back and uh, talk some more about speaking, your sort of tour guide on Alley Audiovision. In this segment, Ralph enjoys a flight-seeing tour of Denali. Ralph, just before that break, you were talking about um, crashing the gate at the military base with Frank Nosek in his little uh, MG. Well, I would like to say that I wasn't involved with crashing the gate. It was Frank who did. I just happened to be along for the ride, <laughs> and I didn't know we were going to do it. I always had a lot of people pulling stunts like that on me, too. Like, uh, <laughs> I remember one time my stepfather picked me up from where I was working at a drugstore. This is in the, like, maybe late 70s. We're driving down uh, Diamond Boulevard back towards Sand Lake. He just starts driving faster and faster. You know, there wasn't too many other people on the road. And finally I said, like, hey, how fast are you going? And he said, uh, 82. He said I was just, like, um, testing to see, like, when you would say something. <laughs> you know, you and I must have a lot have an affinity for each other. The more you talk, <laughs> the more I think you're like me. Yeah, I think if I continued just to be quiet, you know, you probably would have like uh, been going a hundred or <laughs> however fast the yes. car would go. Well, you know, '62 seemed to be kind of a time when uh, a lot of events happened. But remember. Chuck, the associate in the office who had very back drafting station. Actually, it looked more like a nest than a station. It was piled high with papers. I think they let him do everything, all the paperwork in the office. Nobody else liked doing it. And he always had a lot of things to sign and things to look through and, you know, all the shop drawings to go over. And though he was handling some projects too. Kendall, right? Kendall, yes. He. His girlfriend was Cora Horton Kendall, who was the choral director, and I did two shows for her there for her students in consecutive years, and that year as well. 
in 62. Cora and Chuck were really kind of good friends of mine in as much as I moved into the L Street and, and that's where uh, they ultimately lived together. But he would be in that back drafting room and he looked, seemed to think I was his friend, which I was. We, we often walked back to the L Street together or rode together and and, but I was in the very front of that drafting room. And so when he talked, he was like, he would talk to me and yell like, Ralph? And I would have to say, yes, across all these people in between us. Oh, that's and so annoying. God. I know. And he, this one time he says, um, did you see the tour last night? And I said, no, I didn't see any tour. I said, it was Valentine's Day. I was on a date. And uh, he says, well, Jackie Kennedy, she gave a tour of the White House. Cora and I watched. I'm like, you idiot, you didn't do that. And he, How could you have missed that? What's the matter I don't with you? know. <laughs> it was the last thing I'd think about. And I, I turned to him and says, you know, that woman's low... Energy just anesthetizes, I can never pronounce that word, anesthetizes me. She puts me to sleep. And I said, you could stay awake? We were yelling this back and forth. And I said, that Jacqueline Kennedy never opens her mouth or moves her lips when she talks, and it drives me crazy. Anyway, he continued on, and he says, oh, she's quite a lady. Her Eastern girls finishing school manners just shine through and graceful when she sits. <laughs> I was having all these people were in between listening to this, and he says, not a ruffling, legs held close. And, and, and then after fully seated, she did this kind of graceful shift with her knees held together and just was carrying on like that. And I thought, my gosh. This is something you should never be carrying on. I, did you talk like that in front of Cora with her sitting however she was next to you? He says, oh, not really. But I will tell you, the way she would sit on those chairs was pure poetry. I just thought, get a grip. <laughs> well, I was uh, too young to remember any of that when it was happening. But, you know, I always uh, thought that Jackie had plenty of charm and poise. No shortage of that. Oh, she has that. It's just, uh, did you ever watch her talk? No, not really. Have you ever watched anyone never move their lips when they speak? Oh, she had this. Only in like a, of, uh, you know, like a Japanese spy movie that has new dialogue added. <laughs> yes, something like that. Well, she talked like that, and her energy level. I like people that with spunk in them and she just was very mannered well mannered all the time and it's true she did have beautiful manners just like he said you know he always related things himself mother my mother was such a lady of kind <laughs> he was carrying on i said you know chuck stop that i said there's all these gals out in the front office uh, we always had a surplus of them because we're always collating specifications and things out there I said, you, th you're just talking loud, so and they're probably listening. And he says, oh, not really. He says, who listens to me? <laughs> so anyway, that was <laughs> how that ended. But anyway, that's kind of how life was down there. I met a lot of interesting people who were fixtures in uh, Anchorage, and 
the uh, famed lawyer named, I think his name was Charles, too. Boyko was, I met him at the Westward Hotel. Edgar Paul Boyko. Yes. You've heard of him, or you must? Yeah. He was feared, actually, by by many people. Uh, if they wanted to scare the heck out of somebody, they'd go get him as uh, uh, to defend them. But uh, he would eat lunch at the Westward Hotel at the counter, or at a little table, and that's where I met a lot of people who lived downtown. The Turnigan Arm Apartments is directly across from the Westward uh, Hotel. I don't know if it still is or not. Yes. But it had a lot of really interesting people who lived there, and uh, I knew a lot of them. Then the Hewitt Drugstore Apartments up there, I didn't know a lot of, but there were downtown people living there. So those were fairly close. And I think people lived in the old Westward Hotel, too, that's on right on 4th Avenue. But people lived and worked right downtown, which was rather interesting to me. Yeah, that's that's something that they should get back to. For a while in the 90s, um, at the time when you came up and did that uh, house tour in the late 90s, I was working at Kuntz Pfeffer that was downtown at uh, 5th and G. And I was living not too far away, right off of uh, 15th and K Street. And it was like um, not quite close enough to walk, but it was a good bike riding distance, you know, 10 minutes away. And I was thinking at one point, like, God, this is just so cool. How many um, towns of this size in the United States could you live uh, 10 blocks from your work that's in the center of the city? And your house is affordable and it's a nice neighborhood and, uh, you know, so unique. I always resented automobiles, in a way, having to depend on continually. And when I lived at the L Street and the boarding house, I and Blomfields, too, I, I, of course, had rides and people offered rides and stuff, but I would rather walk. I always felt better walking. To work. Yeah, it's it's nice, and uh, and especially downtown. I mean, downtown is uh, not kind of what it used to be, and it's been getting more um, run down the last few years. I spent 11, 12 years maybe working downtown at two different offices, and then I moved um, to two other offices in Midtown after that. And why I would like um, rather be downtown any day of the week than Midtown. Midtown is just uh, ridiculous. You don't walk anywhere, like you drive every place, and uh, everything's an impossible distance away from everything else. And, uh, you know, it's just like um, four, yeah, four lane, fast traffic streets and um, big yeah. parking lots. And, you know, it's just like awful, really. But that north window for the bedroom out of the upstairs of the Hewitt Drugstore building also had a little kind of a vision. It's a very tip top of Mount McKinley, which is off north of Anchorage. And I don't know how many people always want to have that in their few windows in homes that I designed, but that was always a consideration. That house that's stuck again that I'm working on that's under construction now has a little window like that that perfectly frames uh, Mount Susitna. Yes. That's so, and, and actually... It looks like a painting on the wall, you know? Everyone raves about McKinley there, but the mountains that I love is the Alaska Range right across where the Clark Pass is, by the way, Clark. I wanted to bring that out. <laughs> the pass that takes you to the other side over Lake Clark. Lake Clark. Yeah. Yes. Yep, I've heard of it. Never never been out that way, but... Well, you ought to go over there. It's your namesake or something. <laughs> but anyway, I was aware 
that uh, there was an airline way back called Northern Consolidated, and they oh, had. Oh yeah, I remember that. I haven't thought about it since then. Well, they when I was there, uh, and this is a plane that I really enjoyed was the uh, Lockheed F twenty sevens. They were uh, a prop jet, and they were high wing. I guess there were a lot of crashes in them too, but they were a magnificent airplane. You could see so much because the wings were high and they had these huge oval windows and that plane was fast and it would climb. I loved the way it took off because it almost would take off straight up and it was a, it was designed for short hops. And when I was in the States going different places, the F-27 was quite prevalent. I just fell in love with that plane. But in the newspaper, the Anchorage Times, they advertised these wonderful evening, summer evening flights or spring and summer flights uh, around Mount McKinley. Everyone speaks of Mount McKinley. They love the mountain because uh, it's so high and so prevalent. So anyway, I took that flight one evening by myself it was, you know, its usual whine and horror, and we taxied, and then we got over to the runway, and it just, just almost lifts straight up, and we took off at this angle, and we turned at the same time, and that I love that. I, I think I could have been a pilot if I <laughs> could have once really oriented myself along that line. When we got into the air, the stewardess started talking, and she says, I am blah, 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 the former, a former Miss Alaska, and and our onboard narrator is Bradford Washburn. He's Boston Museums of Science founder, and he is a respected as the foremost Mount McKinley expert. And I thought, man, this is really going to be fabulous. And it was. That's and we great. went into we went into the mountain, and over the intercom, this male voice said, "We're looking at the greatest mass of mountain in the world, rising from six level." or excuse me, rising sea level to 20,320 feet. And he says, Everest elevation is higher, but rises from a 10,000 foot plateau. And he says, this mountain rises from sea level. And I thought, wow, I never knew that it was sea level down there, but it is. Yeah, Alaska's not messing around. It doesn't take second place to anybody. <laughs> yes. And there was a lady seated next to him, and it was his wife, Barbara, who he said 47 was became the first woman to ever scale McKinley. And, uh, and we were just kind of flying, looking at all the shadows and the peaks and the jags of that thing. And he said, isn't it magnificent? And we just, I mean, it's breathtaking to get that close to that peak. As long as we're not on the peak, I don't ever want to do that. But the wall of the plane next to me just suddenly got really cold. It just radiates, I guess. Does cold radiate? Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I've noticed that too before going on flights uh, to Fairbanks, you know, the walls uh, noticeably cold. But the plane was kind of interesting, the trip, because they drop down and show you on the north side the Wickersham Wall that climbs from a glacier there, goes up to 14,000 feet. He had mentioned that if you want to know more about it, to read Old Yukon by Judge James Wickersham, which I did. And it's just interesting. He, he was a, a park manager or something like that uh, for McKinley Park, I guess. And he tried to climb the North Face and was defeated. 
a number of times, if I remember correctly, in the book. Oh, by that wall, the North Wickersham Wall. Daunting. But I thought I'd bring that in because that was part of my North Bedroom view, including Elmendorf. Right, so you'd be reminded of it on a daily basis. Yes. I, I was wondering, in the living there with Frank, and we covered a little bit of this last time, but this time that we were, it was Halloween evening, and uh, we were sitting up there in the apartment, and he got into this business about us young guys shouldn't be shouldn't be sitting on the floor when everyone else is having all this jubilation going on. And he proposed that we... Did he know you were an introvert? <laughs> yes, he must have. <laughs> and he plays on that, I think. <laughs> but anyway... It's like, of course uh, I want to be here doing my wallflower dance. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he decided we got to get out there with everybody and he's always doing that to me there's a section in my book and you've got some of the pages there but i think it's entitled uh the hofbrow halloween you want to read it or would you like to yeah i'll i'll give it a shot well you're so good at it i always tell you that but you are okay well time for the second break let's um go away for 30 seconds listen to some strange music and uh, be right back This is Alley Audio Vision. In our third segment, Ralph and Frank Nosek spend Halloween night, 1962, at the Hofbrau restaurant in a reading of an excerpt from Ralph Alley's book. And then later, Frank drags him farther down 4th Avenue for immersion therapy in another dimension. So there's a note in the margin here that says this took place on October 31st, 1962, and the section's called the Hofbrau Halloween. For kids, fun on Halloween has tradition. When two adult males want to join in, there aren't guidelines. It's near 10. We're sitting on the living room's white rug, drinking beer. Frank finishes his bottle, stands, turns off the TV. Dangerous up here. 
Somebody from the bush is bound to walk in the chichaca right under us, raise barrels of twin forty fives toward the ceiling, fire and shout, Drinks on the house! Ralph, we're doomed. Dead. Besides our murders, what are you driving at? Here's what we'll do. Go down on fourth, pick up two women, bring them up here, and roll around on this fuzzy rug. We'll still get killed, Frank. Precisely. What a way to go. Without coats, we take quick front stairs down to fourth. So cold, we run, end ducking in two doors east. The Hofbrau is crowded. People wearing brash makeup and masks. Loud German brass, umpapa, polka music, beer everywhere. Impromptu folk dancing make this a Halloween Oktoberfest meltdown. After a bit, we find a high table with stools, perch ourselves, and watch. A Mideastern-looking guy, maybe 45, comes over. I'm Terry. What did you young gents like? Frank takes the lead. Two German beers on tap. You must be proud to work here. Such a great place. I'm doubly proud I can work here and own it, too. An honor to meet you. Best place in town, Frank waxes. My mom's place, Mama Martha's shish kebab on fireweed, is better. Food is wonderful, more upscale. She works as hostess and loves the attention. That log place on Fireweed off Spinard Road, I ask? That's it. Beers come. Two guys Frank knows join us. Third pulls a stool to the end and sits. We are all about the same age. We drink, enjoy antics abounding. Music, foolishness, polkas. Talk and try hearing. A guy named Alan, a lawyer, Harvard grad, said he knows my work. Another went to law school on Anchorage Times editorial staff. Tells he has an offer from ABC Television and leaving Anchorage for New York City. The third clowns and wisecracks is fun, an administrator for a large general contractor in town. Our evening or life didn't end up rolling on a rug or a pleasure-filled demise. Rather alive, after Halloween jammed with good time and camaraderie, the best since a kid. You know what I like about that? You picked up another house client while you were there, didn't you? <laughs> Yes, I did. One of the guys who was a Harvard graduate, and his name was Alan Merson, he said he knew my work, and I didn't have a lot of work up that day. I said, what did you see? And he said, well, there's a six-sided house that I saw, and he says, and it's really nice. He says, I just am buying a great big bunch of property up way above that, way up. And he says, it's a long, level site that straddles a ridge. And he says, would you be interested in designing a house for that? He says, I, I want something to, to kind of grow out of that ridge and kind of like it is part of the ridge. And I looked at him, I thought, gosh, that's, you're talking to the right guy. That's exactly how I think about architecture rather than just sticking out like a sore thumb. Must have been a nice view from that site also. Oh, well, I, I never really got on it because he didn't proceed with a house. And it had, I don't think, anything to do with me, but I don't think he ever built up there, but he wanted to. But he says, I am taking delivery on a new, I think it was a Cessna Aztec, a twin engine plane. And he says, as soon as, uh, he says, the roads are horrible. He says, uh, up there, he says, you can get up to this six-sided place. But he says, on beyond there is, they're just really impassable. And he says, maybe once things get cleared up so you can see the property better, he says, uh, uh, let us let me just pick you up in that plane after I get delivery and we'll I'll fly you all around it and over it and, and we'll take a good look at it. And I said, fine. 
nicest guy. <laughs> He's just so great. But I asked him, I, I said, why do you need a two-engine plane? Are you just going to buzz around here, Alaska, or what? And he says, oh, I'm from New Jersey. He says, uh, I have to fly back and forth to see my folks and go down to the Caribbean on weekends, and I can't do the commercial jets. He said, uh, there's all these boarding periods that just waste time, and uh, there's layovers, and it's just better that I do it this way. So that's why I had the plane. He did take me up there in the spring. We flew around the ridge. It was it would have been great to do something up there. I often have regrets. I have some sketches uh, somewhere of the my first blushes of that, and it was kind of an interlocking observatory over the top. It was long as the site was. And mm, it would have been nice. fun to do something like that. But yes, I did pick up somebody who was going to be a client. As we progress with the Fourth Avenue and all the blessings of it, I'll go back to where we left off on the last podcast. Frank Nosek decided on June 21st or in 1962 when I was studying for, again, state board exams, I'd passed six of the units and had two to go to become registered, and I wasn't letting anybody get in my way. But June 21st is a summer solstice, and the sun is always in the sky except for that little dip it does down into the Arctic horizon and comes right back up. And if you're out at that time, and I've made it a point in my stays in Anchorage, years in Anchorage, to make sure that I never missed it. And sometimes they'd even drive up into the hills just to watch it. I swear, uh, Clark, that everything stops. <laughs> it's so amazing to me to, for those moments uh, that the sun is under, uh, and, you know, not in the air just right below the horizon, and the full trajectory of the sun is, is there for anybody to look at from morning to night. Last summer, I did something uh, that I've always wanted to do on uh, June 21st. Went up to Fairbanks and went to that baseball game that they start there. They used to start it at midnight, but now it's uh, more like 10 or 10.30, but um, that was so fun. It was like really uh, festive. Yeah, we got a little ballpark in Anchorage, but uh, the one up there is a little bit bigger and uh, the festivities are a little bit uh, more serious. I did some work in Fairbanks myself, and I found Fairbanks people are very spirited and and more into the culture. Uh, Well, I I know a lot of Anchorage people, and we'll probably get into this later time, but I have really enjoyed feeling of of, uh, Fairbanks. And one of the comparisons I've always made is uh, the difference between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is always so, I don't know, showy and serious. But up there, these people are real. and They're just who they are and themselves. And that is something I really enjoy about that element or if people can accomplish that is not to uh, apply all of this exterior to uh, impress others just be who you are sort of the life of a second city it's probably true of chicago as well right yes could be (laughs) anyway frank decided with all these people this fourth avenue where out of the hewitt drugstore apartment was just loaded with people just milling around out there and he says ralph you gotta get out there he says you know nothing about life he says look at them they're just milling around there's everybody there's 
town people, there's soldiers and blah, blah, blah. And he was, we had, you know, ample windows looking down at Fourth Avenue. So I was looking at, he says, come on, let's, let's go out there. And I remembered I had uh, some of, one of the electives in college was poetry. And there was this poet, uh, the professor there was almost blind, but my gosh, I, I took uh, everything he taught because I learned so much from those courses. But one thing was a little passage that I learned that we had to memorize some poetry. And, and the one I remembered was this. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is stretched out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, some muttering retreats of restless one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. And that has always stuck in my mind. I always thought... You That's know, perfect for Anchorage. That mo I know that is exactly, and he says, "Where in the hell does that come from?" And I, I told him that T. S. Eliot beat him to it. He did that years and years ago, and he says, "Well, let's go. Let us go then." He says, "Let's get down there." He says, "I'm going to show you what life is like," and I said. Are you going to take show me the levels of hell down here? Says no, Don Dante or Dante Dante, whatever his name is, already did that. He says I'm going to just teach you where life is really like, and so I went. Oh, brother, can you see my eyes rolling? We right ran now? down. <laughs> <laughs> we took the steps down the fourth. I like I always. I, I would have been th I would have been thinking I had something else, so much more important to do. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I had to study for exams, which were on my back at that moment. But anyway, we. I always say we we took the steps unto, like in the Bible, unto Fourth Avenue, and headed east. And the devil went directly to the worst possible horrible music and the thickest crowd. And you can hear it clear from the street. I mean, it's like they, they're barking for people to go in there, like there's a barker out there. And they're playing this music like, this is what I need to hear. And Frank said, this is where we're going to go. And I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> this is unlike me. Stick in out every like way. a sore thumb in there. And anyway, people were pushing. People were pushing in at the same time people were pushing out and there's all this flaming around just everyone was gyrating and arms going everywhere and legs going everywhere and we walked through this uh, milieu into over out to the bar which was a back and we sat down on stools and frank ordered you, know, you can't sit in there without drinking so frank ordered drinks I really didn't want for the place I really didn't want to be sitting on that stool. And anyway, I was glad to have made it that far into hell. And he says, I got to go to the bathroom. You, you sit here, save my seat. Well, I was sitting there sipping on my drink and this guy comes up next to me and he says, uh, where do you work? And I said, Manly and Mayor. He says, well, what kind of horse shit is that? <laughs> I said, well, I'm an architect. And he says, what kind of horse shit is that? I, I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere talking to this guy, so I just looked straight ahead. Oh, you could probably say whatever you <laughs> wanted, though, because he'll never remember yeah. it later. I just looked straight ahead and started sipping. He says, don't you want to know what I am? And I said, okay, what am you? He said practically. And he says, I'm a spec five. And I says, what? What is a spec five? I've never heard of such a thing. And 
Anyway, Frank shows up and he says, what are you guys talking about? And I said, this guy here, he says he's a fly speck. <laughs> and Frank all of a sudden made this quick move between us and, and said, look, just hold off. Just go away. He said, uh, he doesn't understand you. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> and that was it was a truth. I did not understand it. I do now. I, I do not. Well, good for Frank. It sounds like he was making himself really useful there. He reappeared at the right time and uh, kept you out of trouble. <laughs> yes. And But he left me again. He says, I see a gal out there I want to dance with. And uh, he says, now, don't you look right or left. You look straight ahead and stay out of trouble. And don't open your mouth to talk to anybody. <laughs> So I said, you really are in hell now. So you I was sitting there <laughs> sipping on this, <laughs> sipping on this stupid drink that I didn't like, and just that was the only mouth opening I did, and was looking straight ahead, and all of a sudden there were all these hands in my crotch, <laughs> and God, I looked, and sitting next to me was this rather plump, over made up young lady. Uh, and she was sitting there, unlike Jacqueline Kennedy, I tell you, it was amazing. And I said, what in the hell are you doing? And she says, I want to make you hoppy. <laughs> and Clark, she did. I, I hopped so quick off of that bar stool. And I just cut this swan through this den of iniquity, <laughs> through all of that crap going on over there, people. And I brushed by Frank, and I said, I can't stand how these people are. And he says, Ralph, this is how people are. I said, though, this is the way they should be. This isn't the way they should be. And he says, yeah, but this is the way people are. And I just kept on going. And he got, he followed me right out of there, out to the street. And I was just not letting anybody get in my way. I was going to head back to the apartment and study. And anyway, as I was walking away, he was standing there saying, Ralph, if you don't come back, I'm going to tell those people you took that stuff in this crowd. I mean, he's always pushing these damn buttons. But wow. that's Frank Nosek. Well, I think I might have had an experience sort of like that at one time, but the difference between you and me is like I've tried to forget all about it. <laughs> <laughs> do you still know the people who do took you into there? Because I do. Yeah. Uh, Frank was just I would down have left too, and I probably ago. would have left without telling anybody I was leaving. <laughs> just sort of sneak out the back door when no one is looking. <laughs> Well, and speaking of that, like um, I think we got to wrap this one up. Can you believe we've been talking uh, for an hour already? So I'm sure you've got uh, hundreds more um, Frank Nosek stories to um, impart here. We'll have to save it for the next episode. Well, I will try to remember some more, but I'm sure there's a lot more years in Anchorage that have a lot more interesting avenues that were taken, other than fourth. <laughs> well, it's great speaking with you as usual, Ralph. Uh, I hope we all survive this uh, thing that we're going through and uh, we can do uh, many more of these.
Some of Ralph's amazing work can be seen on his website, artechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph's still working on a book about his time in Alaska. This has been Alley Audio Vision, Episode 5, recorded April 9th, 2020. If we survive the virus pandemic, we will return soon for another great episode. So long, dear friends.